Welcome to Ideas at the House, a weekly podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. Thanks everyone for joining us for this special session as part of the Antidote Festival at the Sydney Opera House. Of course, we'd much rather be in the Sydney Opera House on Gadigal land today. Instead, we're doing this virtually while so many of us are in lockdown at the moment. So if you're in lockdown somewhere all around the nation, uh, we're hoping this will be a lovely lunchtime session and a very informative look uh, at the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which of course is a beautifully written document, a call to the nation uh, to really enshrine a piece of legislation, enshrine in the constitution, a mechanism to give Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people a voice in the nation. And it is uh, a document which was written by hundreds of different Aboriginal people and it was had the implementation and the input from so many different Indigenous nations all around the country. And we're very privileged today to be joined by three people who are deeply passionate about the Uluru Statement from the Heart, Professor Megan Davis, Adi Pat Anderson and Thomas Mayer. Welcome to you all. Why don't we start with a look at a Uluru Statement 101 and have a look at exactly what it is for someone who's never heard of the Uluru Statement from the heart who might be joining us today. Professor Megan Davis, how would you explain it to someone who ne- who's never really read it or, or heard about what, what it's all about? Thanks for giving me the hardest question first, Bridget. But um, <laughs> no, look, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, I, I think is really um, uh, one in a long line, but the, probably the most important since Federation. Um, statements from uh, First Nations peoples uh, about what, role they want to play in Australia's democracy um, and what form of recognition, you know, we want within um, the framework of the state. We were excluded from those decisions um, in 1901 um, and or at least the 1890s and the drafting of the constitution leading up to 1901 um, when our constitution did come into force. We, We all know that Australia didn't enter into any kind of peace treaty um, at the outset in terms of the initial invasion and dispossession. Um, We had a referendum in 1967 um, that corrected our exclusion, but it didn't um, empower us in any way. It didn't lead to the recognition of any particular right. And so here we are in 2021, still one of the few liberal democracies in the world with no form of constitutional uh, recognition of First Nations people. So the Uluru Statement from the Heart is um, a, well, we call it an invitation, but primarily it's a law reform proposal. It is a proposal from a number of First Nations people who participated in a very complex um, constitutional process over the past 11 years, um, and then ultimately uh, from 2015 to 2017, very serious contemplation of what constitutional reform might look like. and that culminated with um, Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people saying at Uluru in 2017, look, this is a really complex proposal, um, one that politicians, given the nature of Australian retail politics, are likely to not want to implement. And so the only way you get substantive reform in this country is to do it uh, with the approval of all Australians. And so that is what the Uluru Statement from the Heart is. It's an invitation for all Australians to help us do what should have been done 1788 
1890s, 19, you know, 9, 1901, 1967, we still haven't done it as a nation. And so really um, the Uluru Statement from the Heart is speaking to the unfinished business of the country. Well, when it was first read out with all of those people there, it was very moving. There wasn't a dry eye in the place, so to speak. And it was uh, uh, a unanimous people stood up and every, the whole room uh, applauded. So um, that was the sort of end of that quite uh, intense uh, process over many months. But what it is, is all the things that Megan said. And it's also, you know, it's because we've done everything else. We've set up our own organisations. In my day, we all had to get educated. So we did. So, and then we set up our own organisations. You know, we've done everything that's been asked of us. It doesn't matter what we do. We still are powerless. We have no power in this country. And this is a feeling expressed by so many other of, of us that attended the regional dialogues. All the agencies that we've set up, including the very big and powerful ATSIC, was just done away by the stroke of a pen in the afternoon. That's why the people that we spoke to says, we need to get them to pay attention to us. We need to use their big law. And their big law there is the um, the Australian population, population rather, is the constitution. So we need a protected voice to parliament that the government of the day couldn't do away with so easily. We have to go back to ground zero. Every time there's a change of government, every time there's a new uh, prime minister, every time there's a, a new uh, bureaucrat heading up, we all have to troop to Canberra and start all over again as if nothing has happened. And then we're all tired of it. We're tired of it. And it's time to fix this unfinished business. And there's an extremely elegant and eloquent proposal there. It was given to this, as Megan said, we knew the politicians when they go for this. So it was by, by design. It was a need to present it to as a gift, a gift of healing and love to the Australian people. And only, only, only the Australian public can change the constitution. So we, we appeal to their decency as we did in 67 and now 53 years or whatever it is later, we're asking you again to hear us. We have an offer, we have a deal, we have something on the table. If you don't know about it, please, I urge you to read it. Go to our webpage, um, ularustatement.com, .org rather, and it's, oh, there's a whole lot of information there that everybody can, can look at and, and easily understand. So if I have one plea for today is to ask you all logged in here, is to inform yourselves. This is really important. This is the big work of this generation, along with other things like climate change. We have a few challenges um, facing us as COVID, climate change, and what have you. But there's also us. This is this is the time. Let's let's do let's do it now. That's enough. That's enough. This has not been a 12-year process. This has been a 12-year process. But we started pretty much when the first boats came. We've been doing this generation after generation after generation have been doing the same thing. We just tried different different ways. This time we said, let's appeal to them. Let's ask them to include us in their big law. That's the Uluru Statement from the Heart. For those who don't know much about the process at Uluru, us three days, getting all of those people from across the nation in the one room, really just having days to, to hash out an historic call to action. That is such a difficult thing to do. Thomas, what are your memories from Uluru and for those days leading up to the statement being formed? Oh, well, my memories are, as a person that, uh, you know, has nowhere near the, the long history that Professor Megan Davis and Arnie Pat Anderson have, uh, you know, in this national work, 
Um, I came in uh, pretty fresh-faced, I suppose, you know, from the union movement, and uh, and I saw great opportunity in the lead-up to it. You know, this this opportunity having organised, uh, you know, rallies and and protests on the streets. Uh, this opportunity to change what I recognised as this uh, incoherency in how we uh, took on political matters, and that's not uh, um, because we're at fault, but as uh, as um, Aunty Pat Anderson talked about ATSIC, it was because, uh, like with that um, that representative structure and many more before it, um, all of those voices had been been silenced and uh, and and uh, tactics of division. And so I saw this great opportunity to bring something together as a consensus, and uh, and that was the hope that I had going to Uluru, understanding the power of that. At Uluru, it was I, I remember the the great tension, you know, just uh, just like at the the dialogues that I attended, there was an, a tension in that there was uh, you know a great challenge of of different ideas. Um, there were um, you know like any group of human people, there's different political ideals. Uh, different perspectives and experiences, and um, but the, the the final morning when Professor Megan Davis read the statement for the first time, I mean that's that's the thing that's really etched in my heart and soul that uh, we stood as one, as Arnie Pat said, and, and endorsed the statement with standing acclamation. And you know my my face was just so sore from from smiling uh, so much that we had achieved a, a a consensus that was coherent that was specific about what we wanted and was written to the Australian people with all of these lessons that we'd learnt from from a long history, as Arnie Pat said, uh, you know, and I felt like we had uh, and we did have, uh, we do have um, this great opportunity for change in this country. Just lastly, I'll add, you know, I mean, 20 years of reconciliation and truth-telling and marches across the bridges and you know, uh, reconciliation breakfasts and lunch and teas. I mean, all of that uh, needs to now culminate in a moment where people can transfer this sentiment at the ballot box that, that fundamentally changes the relationship between Australia and First Nations people. Well, that's a that's an important point about the reconciliation movement, which meant a lot to a lot of people, especially a lot of non-Indigenous people felt, right, reconciliation, I can get on board with that. I'll go to the morning tea, I'll go to the bridge walk, I want to see change for the nation. But Megan, can you explain why for a lot of us, for a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, reconciliation really didn't yield the kind of change needed uh, across the country? Yeah, I think um, I think post Uluru, the language of reconciliation has certainly been wrapped up in the Uluru statement, but in fact, um, if anything, the Uluru Statement is a rejection of the re reconciliation movement. Um, I think when we ran the dialogues um, over a year in the preparatory meeting, I think most First Nations peoples were of the view that there was a problem with reconciliation in Australia. And um, and and so one of the, the reasons people posit that is that reconciliation um, uh, in Australia was set up in a statutory kind of sense by, by Bob Hawke when he couldn't deliver on national land rights or, or a treaty. And treaty was one promise that he did very publicly make. And um, they needed to come up with a reason as to, you know, they, we knew it was the West Australian elections that he couldn't risk running a treaty policy. Um, and they needed to come up with a reason as to why they were dumping this really significant 
structural reform. And um, they decided um, in Cabinet to send us down a path of statutory reconciliation. And, um, and that's what happened for 10 years under the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation. Um, when people talk about truth-telling and the need to do that first before substantive rights, it's been done. That's what we did in this country in the 90s. Um, and we can't forget that piece of work. There were really important Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people who worked on the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation. There were many Australians that participated in that process over a decade, um, including the culmination of all that work in the bridge walk. Um, then you get to 2001 and you get this wholesale rejection of reconciliation. Um, um, at least the agenda set out by that decades-long piece of work by um, John Howard, the new Prime Minister. Um, and he creates or he recalibrates reconciliation for the nation and he, he splits it between what he calls symbolic reconciliation and um, what he calls substantive, you know, concrete reconciliation, which was all of his agenda, which is, um, you know, jobs in the mainstream economy and the dismantling of the Aboriginal sector and um, and and you know, education and many, many other things that are that are important. But the the important thing about the reconciliation critique is that it um, focused on citizenship rights, things that we already have as a consequence of being citizens of Australia, but um, we aren't really um, enjoying as much because of various reasons, which led to the closing the gap agenda. Um, but he, he basically um, created this binary and put rights, substantive rights to one side. Um, and the reconciliation movement in Australia and RA and Canberra, they sided with John Howard. And so then you move down this process where we focused on raps, um, but we, what we never talked about was justice. Um, and I think, you know, we were really surprised, Pat and I, and all the dialogues, all 13 dialogues, to hear um, this very strong critique of reconciliation and where it's taken the nation. And there's a really great, piece of work done by a Harvard scholar, Charlotte Lloyd, who studied Australia's reconciliation process. She studied many in the world and she stumbled upon ours and she said, this is really unusual because while it's fantastic for corporate civic engagement and civic citizenship, um, Australia's completely ignored the justice element. That is to say the structural reforms that are required to empower someone. Um, you know, what does, what does repair look like to a community after something like what has been done to our people, um, that has never been implemented in this country. We, 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 we kind of implemented in a very ad hoc way. We don't mind the symbolism, but when it comes to the kind of structural reforms that it requires to actually get our people out of the kind of disadvantage that closing the gap speaks to, we haven't done it. So I think the Uluru Statement from the Heart is a recalibration of that. It is um, in some ways... You know, as Pat knows from the dialogues, a lot of old people said we have never met yet. And reconciliation, the dictionary meaning, is that it's um, it's conciliation, it's becoming friends again after a dispute. And a lot of people raised this in all of the dialogues that the definition did not fit our situation. Um, and if people look to the de to the definition of reconciliation, they will see that. And so that's what recognition is about. It is saying, look, we've never met yet. We haven't actually done the first step. Um, and that's why people think of the Uluru Statement as that kind of first peace treaty, this kind of discussion with the Australian people who were calling out to meet us at the rock and walk with us on this journey to structural change. 
because this kind of enshrinement of something like a voice, which is what the dialogue's landed on, this has never been tried before. We've never actually tried to constitutionally empower power First Nations. But that's the critique of reconciliation, and I think it's a really important one for Australians to understand. Absolutely. And Arnie, Pat, let's talk about the dialogues, as Megan was saying there, as co-chair of the Referendum Council, you were charged with a massive task to go around the nation and really um, get a temperature check of where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were at. And you've spoken a lot about the anger. You've spoken about how people were feeling post the reconciliation movement. You know, we had a lot of companies doing their raps, a lot of symbolism, but on the ground, how did you find people? What sort of things were you hearing? Sorry, Bridget, just broke up. What sort of, what was the word you used? What sort of? What sort of things were you hearing from people? Oh, okay. Yes. Just sounds just breaking up a bit. Um, we heard a lot of pain and a lot of anger and a lot of distress. The funding that was taken away from, from us under the IAS scheme was a disaster for our people. People are really, really suffering out there. And so we were, we felt the referendum council felt a big responsibility to do it, trying to get this as right as we possibly could and to not do, we decided to not um, do a round of consultations. I really don't like that word. Uh, so Megan and her team came up with what we call the regional dialogues. It's engaging our communities in a conversation. Okay. So we had, we had planned 18 around the country, but we didn't have the money, so we got down to 13. So we had 13 of these regional dialogues around the country in, in centres, um, two in uh, Western Australia, two in the NT, two in Western Australia, uh, sort of, um, New South Wales, and one in, one, in Tas one in Tasmania, and one and a half in South Australia because the top half of South Australia, they all look up to, to Alice Springs. So a lot of those people came either to the Adelaide or maybe to the one at, at Ross River. We selected, we didn't choose anybody, except, but we chose the referendum council, I mean, when I say we. Um, what we this process was designed by, by Megan and her team, and it was very precise, and it was a deliberative process with a very big uh, education component. But in terms of getting people together, um, we chose, we, the council, chose an organisation that would have the capacity, was large enough, and had the capacity to hold the host these meetings. So we had organisations like in New South Wales, it was a New South Wales Land Council. In South Australia, it was a consortium of some of the legal services and whatever. So around the country, we had these sorts of organisations who would host the organisation. They were also asked by us to choose about seven, seven workers to work with them and be the local, the local team. And we had the same, uh, we had an agenda, the same agenda, the same number, the same time, the same scheduling, the same people running the, running the, diff the different breakout groups. And uh, we came in and did that, but were hosted by um, the, organi the organization. So that's how it worked in every, in every center. So, uh, and then a letter went out. We asked, well, importantly, I've just forgotten the, the criteria, the makeup, of the 100 people in each of the areas, because we asked them, to, well, they're held in a one set, they're asked people to bring in from the from the uh, outlying um, areas. Um, so we asked for 60% to be traditional owners and custodians of land and country. We asked for 20% to be the local organisations in, but once again, throughout the region. 
and 20% for people that didn't quite fit that, those kind of categories, for instance, stolen generations people or prominent influential people uh, in the region. Um, but the, the host, the host organisation gave us the invite list. So the referendum council didn't in fact invite anybody. It was a host organisation, but an a letter of invitation did go out under my signature as co-chair of the referendum council. Now that same process and the same procedures, the same agenda, the same discussion was held throughout the 13 organisations. And what happened, just quick, I'm taking a lot of time here. At the end of the, um, uh, one of the things at the end was to who wanted to go to the convention. Each of the centres had a, um, an election and they elected seven of their rep people from that meeting to go to the convention. And uh, and that's uh, that's how that happened. So all of those people who, um, most of them, most people that came to the convention had been through the regional dialogue process. Every meeting was recorded in front of everybody, put up a big big piece of paper. The whole meeting went through it, changing words with that. In the end, we say, is that is that correct? Everyone say, yes, that's what we said, that's fine. So we still have all those um, bits of, of, of paper today. And then when we went to Uluru, the Referendum Council, Megan and her team once again, had put together an analysis of all of those recordings. And what came out in that order, and there's a specific reason for the order, was um, voice, treaty, truth. Treaty and truth together, that the voice is a vehicle within which that will control, manage, and we would have the say about how that, how that all happens. So people were really uh, clear on that as well. So um, that's the process uh, that happens. It hasn't happened before in this country. And we also, we asked, and they, people, every dialogue did it, within those categories of those three groups of people, we asked for them to be, have, be mindful of um, having the same amount of, of, of women and men and young people as well. So there was a mix of ages and groups of people that attended each of those dialogues. And those dialogues, each one, they elected their representatives to be their delegates at the convention. That's how that process worked. Really important for people to understand just how exhaustive it was and, yes. and the design and the, the thought that went into designing those dialogues. Thomas, in the NT, obviously this was post-intervention, um, all of these dialogues and many other uh, serious failings in the Northern Territory in terms of all the communities uh, around the Territory. When we were starting to hear about that anger, about hearing people just being totally dispirited in those dialogues, really fired up and, and saying, we don't just want a line in the constitution acknowledging us. Did that surprise you? Tell us, give us a bit of context about what was happening in the NT. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it was still very raw, you know, even though it was uh, 2016, 2017, uh, you know, some almost 10 years after the intervention, the, the policies uh, and, and the damage continues to be done uh, from that. And, and so it was a really important topic uh, in, in the Northern Territory, um, how the, the race power um, was used, um, how the Racial Discrimination Act was, uh, you know, was suspended. Um, I think I think the best thing that I can talk about here in how uh, this shaped what the people in the Northern Territory had to say was was uh, I think uh, the people from Wadjulu, you know, the the Uluru family themselves, uh, Sammy Wilson, you know, who who is you know the, the head of the Uluru family, uh, you know, in the cultural way, uh, and the Uluru family gave the name Uluru to this campaign to the statement because. Um, as Sammy explained to me, 
um, they don't want to be standing alone. If a government that was as hostile as the Howard government was in what they did, um, try to do something like the intervention again. Uh, they want First Nations around the country, they want a representative body uh, to be standing together uh, to be able to stop something like that from happening again. And, 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 and importantly, um, the establishment of such a structure and such a strong First Nations voice um, is absolutely vital to um, repairing the damage that's been done and getting things right going forward. Megan, I remember getting on the plane to Uluru. It was a plane full of blackfellas. It was, there was a huge buzz um, in the air getting to Uluru for that final kind of three or four days leading up to the to the statement being finalised. For you, how much pressure was on you and other members of the Referendum Council and all of the people there to come up with a really historic statement for the nation in just a few days? Um. <coughs> <laughs> Pat and I went in a bit earlier than everybody. Um, I can't remember how many days, maybe a week, but it was it was it was a huge amount of pressure. I mean, there were difficult moments. Hey, Pat. Um, but um, look, I, I think one of the things that needs to be said about the main Uluru meeting is that all the work had already been done. So um, there wasn't a lot of hashing any anything out because I mean, it just talks to the importance of the design. So one of the things in designing the dialogues we wanted to do, there was a couple of things. Is Adi Pat's right? The mob were really feeling very powerless and voiceless because of the Indigenous Advancement Strategy, because there really is, you know, a lot of their communities had been their community organisations, um, health orgs, employment, you know, had been dismantled through this IIS, and they're getting answers out of the Commonwealth is very difficult. And it wasn't really until just the past few years where the Australian National Audit Office has 100% validated everything that the mob said in the dialogues. Um, um, so that that's really critical to understanding the arbitrary decision-making by the Commonwealth about funding, how the bulk of that funding was taken from mob and given to non-Indigenous orgs, orgs with rats. So the first round of funding for the IAS, the bulk of the money was taken from communities, including dismantling night patrols and lots of things that mob have done since Whitlam's self-determination era. And it was um, given back to corporations with reconciliation action plans. Um, we know from the community at Yarrabah, who we work closely with on Uluru, that there were cultural programs and other programs that they used to deliver themselves that were then delivered by Save the Children who drive in from Cairns. So, so it was really a very desperate dismantling of the sector and one that really hasn't been corrected, actually. Um, but um, I think it's important to, to, to know that in designing the dialogue, we needed to design it in a way that spoke to that voiceless and powerlessness. So that's why it was so bottom up, as Arnie Pat said. We didn't have facilitators, not at the dialogues and not at Uluru. We were very proud of that. It had to be local people who knew their people, who could speak like their people and knew their names. And so we banned facilitation. We banned that word. We banned facilitators. Um, and worked really hard on working with local people. But we really needed to ensure that um, group groupthink um, didn't come into play, meaning we needed people to be given a fair chance at listening to the legal lessons and the civics lessons and the analysis of politics and all of the things that went into a three-day deliberative dialogue on constitutional change, but allow them to make a decision based on the information because that's what free, prior and informed consent is. So yes, it was the collective, as Annie Pat said, 60% were traditional owners from the area. Um, but at the same time, people needed to participate in that without feeling like 
they were being bullied into supporting treaty or being bullied into supporting reserved seats. And we've all been to those town hall meetings where you don't talk up because the loudest talk. And so that was a really key thing. So all of the dialogues ran in this way so that once, um, as Annie Pat said, you'd get to the end of the dialogue and everyone would have to agree on the record of meeting and you would not leave the site, the location, until everyone was happy and signed off. And that that ROM, that record of meeting, went to Uluru. And so the really big thing about Uluru, and Bridget, you might have noticed in the media sometimes some Aboriginal leaders getting upset about what happened there. No, you, you couldn't go to Uluru and spoil it. You couldn't go to Uluru with another agenda and just run over the top of something people had been working on for years and years. So Uluru was each region reading out their record of meeting. Um, so you couldn't undo what was done in the regions. Too often that is done by not just in non-Indigenous society, but in our own society where, where people get to go to these national meetings and undo everything that the mob have said back in community. Well, no, the record of meetings stood. And then we pulled from the record of meeting what people had agreed on was the priority in their region. So that was what happened over the bulk of the Uluru meeting was the reading out of the ROMs. Um, and then hearing what the prioritising was of the reforms in the region, uh, in each region, and that's where it became clear that the amendment to the constitution, so that's the opportunity on the table, um, would be something akin to an enshrined voice, um, and then the voice is inextricably linked to a coordinated approach to agreement making or treaty. So it was a very clever reform, I think, that all of the dialogues came up with, including the primary amendment, which um, no constitutional lawyer had come up with that solution prior to the dialogues. And that really speaks to the creativity of dialogues when you inform people and allow, allow them to drive the change themselves. Um, and so really by the time we got to Uluru, yeah, it was, it was stressful, Pat, in terms of the logistics. But in terms of what came out, um, really we, we had to do as Bridget, you allude to, and that is provider logic, and that was what was decided, right? We have this framework here of voice treaty truth. You know, what's the logic for that framework? And that's what the actual Uluru statement is, the one-pager. But but it's longer than the one-page. So the Uluru statement is actually 18 pages. It includes the truth-telling bit, which is the Aboriginal history of Australia. And I think that's important because of the point I made earlier, Bridget, and that is... Um, most people in the dialogues believe that truth-telling is used as a way of avoiding substantive reform form in this country. They will say to us, oh, no, we need to do truth-telling for 10 years, and then they kick the road down on substantive rights. Um, and we're at risk, you know, you're at risk of everybody, all, all of the nations are at risk of that happening again. Um, they did it with the Royal Commission. They did it with, you know, the um, uh, reconciliation uh, process. They did it with stolen gens. They make our people go through these very lengthy truth-telling commissions and you come out the other end and they implement very few, if if at all, the recommendations in those commissions. So that explains truth being at the end, but it was stressful, but our people had already done the work. We were very privileged to work with them and we were very privileged to hear them um, and um, hear them participate and come up with the really marvellous offer to the Australian people that they did come up with. We're really proud of just having been there and participate. Maybe it was just stressful for me because my Wi-Fi failed and we missed our deadlines. 
It would have been stressful for you, for sure. You had to file. No, it was a, we had to file. It was it was a wonderful, wonderful few days, and and it's really important to note that it was there were so many people from all different work, walks of life. There were students, academics, there were teachers and elders. Some of us who are no longer with us as well. Um, Auntie Pat, let's talk about the reaction afterwards. How, coming out of that meeting and coming out of that time, I remember someone saying that it, there was just euphoria in the room once that consensus had been reached. And then you hear from the Prime Minister and from other people that it was a very big idea. Uh, that, that, was a, that was one of the key lines that came from the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull at the time. What was the reaction for people who put the time in in the room then to be hearing that it was a very big idea and very complex and very challenging uh, from politicians especially? It was really, how can I say, um, it was devastating really. Um, although, you know, we didn't expect much um, from the government and we, and we still don't, hence this is a gift to, to you, to the, to the people. But it was, you know, once again, we didn't give them the right answer. So he, the Prime Minister of the day, Malcolm Turnbull, wouldn't even allow the nation, wouldn't allow the nation to have a conversation. I don't know whether he didn't trust the population to be, you know, to be to be sophisticated enough to have this conversation. So that's in my in my view, that was the worst thing that I think that he did by his rejection of the Uluru statement from the heart. This is a very modest, even conservative request. You know, uh, it's. And it's beautifully written, it's elegant, it's eloquent, but still still that wasn't enough. We still couldn't convince the government of the day to hear us, to, to, to listen, not only to hear us, to listen to us, to understand. You know, expose ourselves like with, you know, the, all the truth-telling we've done, every opportunity, whatever is committee or whatever is put up, we have to expose ourselves. We have to do the giving. When is it going to come back the other way, for goodness sake? So you know, I'm pretty angry uh, after all, the, all the all these years, and this is it. That's why I'm, I can say we've done, and I've been my generation. We've been part of it. We bloody well done everything. This is the last. This is this is this is on the table now. This is valid. This is sensible. This is necessary. This is a roadmap on the table. However, it will require. Some, a level of maturity and sophistication. And I wonder whether we're up for it. Um, so, it, you know, they did to us again what they've been doing to us for generations, just dismiss us, disregard us, and, and you know, just leave us floundering. But we haven't. We're into the fifth year now. There's been a, gro a growing group of people, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal around the country, who are supporting more and more the Uluru Statement from the heart. And that is the only way, this is a people's movement, and it's the only way more and more Australians pledge their support or write to the Prime Minister, write to their local uh, MP and say they support and are, would happy to, to go to a, a referendum to enshrine a protected voice, uh, voice to Parliament, Parliament please, not to government, a voice to Parliament uh, in the... Uh, two different things. Some people get them mixed up. I've seen, them, you know, some of the press interchangeably using the words voice to Parliament and a voice of government, they're two different things for goodness sake. Um, so be careful with the, the language, but uh, we're not going to let this go. There's been a, a grow, as I said, a growing group of people group all over all over Australia from different walks of life. Um, we've got a real chance here to do the structural reform that has never been done in this country. And we are lagged behind the rest of the rest of the world. And there's no reason why 
there is no, and Megan, no, I shouldn't be talking about, but, you know, the former judges, three of them, you know, uh, former High Court Judge um, uh, Gleeson, French and Haynes have all said, and a lot of the legal profession, there is no legal impediment for doing this. So therefore, it just leaves a political decision. But you, the people of Australia, you have the power. So there's a lot of work to do. So we're going to do this. We're not going to take this lying down and we haven't and we won't. We're going to run at this. Well, that's right, Thomas, Anyhow, five years, nearly five years since uh, yeah. since the Uluru Statement was first read out. Well, it's gone quickly in some ways and slowly in others. What uh, what difference was there when you went out to speak to Australians, Thomas, about the Uluru Statement compared to the politicians' response? What were you hearing from just everyday people? Oh, there's a stark difference. I mean, the politicians are so far behind. I mean, that, that's that's why I mentioned the the reconciliation movement. I, I think, you know, I mean, people have been doing truth-telling for a long time. Uh, I think uh, a great majority of Australians know the truth and certainly a great, great majority of Australians um, want change. You know, they're, they're ready for this. Uh, and that's that's the feeling that I got as I travelled around the country, uh, you know, talking up the Uluru Statement, educating people. Uh, all they need is that 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 moment in time, you know, uh, for, to to go to the polls and say yes, uh, it's time to recognise First Nations people with a voice and and power. And why do you think that is? Do you think people it was it was just the right time for this? Are people ready? They're ready to take that next step. Had, had people noticed uh, the torment of the powerlessness, which is one of those key lines in the Uluru Statement? Do you think? I think it's I think it's because uh, there's. There has been a lot of truth telling. You know, all of the, the um, Royal Commission reports are full of truth telling. You know, there's been historians writing about it for a long time. You've got great documentaries and movies out there now. Uh, you've got, you know, the, the, the younger generation learning the truth of history in schools like we never have before. And then those young people are going into their homes and society and, and passing this on this great pride of the history that we should be embracing and writing into the nation's DNA. Um, and I think that's, that's why, you know, people are ready for this. Uh, and, you know, the other, the other thing is the notion of the fair go, you know, the, the one of the bits of research that has been done around this came, campaign, uh, it shows that a majority of Australians would vote yes in a referendum to enshrine a voice. Uh, but further that uh, one of the compelling reasons is they, they believe that um, this is a fair thing to do. Uh, this why wouldn't we give First Nations people a voice and, and why hadn't we done it in 1901? Megan, you might be looking around if you're someone who's um, been following the Uluru Statement and the developments since then, you'd be looking at treaty processes in some states and territories, even a process in Victoria towards truth-telling, and you might wonder why do we need a federal mechanism in your view really give that voice to the federal parliament? What do we miss by just only having state-based processes? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. And um, the treaty processes were underway when the dialogues were on, which is why Turnbull and Shorten gave us permission to have treaty as one of the options for the dialogues. And look, um, I think one of the key things about the dialogues was, you know, there was a kind of very full um, uh, agenda in terms of le legal and civics knowledge. So the, the the legal and civics education underpins the dialogue and any decision making on um, constitutional reform. And so what was discussed was 
you know, the fact of Australia's federation, um, Australia's constitution. So we often look to the US and Canada and New Zealand as being uh, important kind of comparative analysis for us. And we adopt, you know, kind of uncritically a lot of the things that they've done. But Australia is a very different country. So take New Z- uh, Canada, for example, they do have post-colonial treaty making, but that that treaty making hasn't been very quick or successful either. But most importantly, the provinces have retained power, whereas our state governments haven't, despite what's going on with COVID. So the Commonwealth does, you know, really rule the roost in Australia. Um, And 1967 really gave the primary responsibility of the Commonwealth, um, of, of Aboriginal affairs to the Commonwealth. So despite the fact that the Commonwealth likes these days to walk back its responsibility that was given to it by the Australian people in 67, it exists. They are the primary people when it comes to the um, to Indigenous affairs. Um, and, um, and so what we find when people go through the state and territory-based treaties process is, is a few things. One is treaties don't mean much if the Commonwealth isn't at the table. Two, state constitutions are ordinary act of parliament. They're ordinary legislation. They're not special legislation like the Australian Constitution. For, for the Australian Constitution, you need a referendum to change it. So a national majority and a national Australian in, each, in a national um, majority of states and territories. Um, so you need those two. Um, with a state um, constitution, it can just be amended by the next parliament. It's easily amended. Um, and what that means is treaties, if they are going to be legislated, which I think this discussion is being had by Victoria and Northern Territory, they're super, super vulnerable to legislative override. doesn't really make them treaties. Um, they may be constructive arrangements, as we call them at the UN. Um, they might be just agreements. Whether they're treaties, um, that's a whole other conversation. And so I think um, what the discussion in the dialogues was that it's great that the treaty activity is going on at a state and federal level, uh, state and territory level, and people felt that was important because the Commonwealth is dragging its feet at a Commonwealth, you know, level. Um, so while they're kind of inert when it comes to Aboriginal policy, you know, the Labor governments are doing all of the treaty work. Um, but two things, when South Australia changed government from the Labor Party to the LNP, the entire treaty process fell over. Um, and Queensland and Victoria are yet, with their treaty policies, yet to face an election. Um, uh, Queensland's not really anywhere near there. It's not looking at all like a treaty. Um, and, and the same with the Northern Territory. The other, the other problem is doing it without the Commonwealth, you seek to almost embed the power imbalance between First Nations people and the state within the framework of this agreement. And that's not what we want. And I think there was a really incredible conversation about treaty in the dialogues. And it went something like this. The power imbalance is so huge that we couldn't even enter into treaties with the Commonwealth right now. We have nothing to leverage with. Um, it's not like they're British Columbia and they're going to give us 40 million bucks to go away and find our own legal council to start negotiating treaties. Treaties are hard for legal agreements. Um, in some of the states and territories, you've got a department that's doing both sides of the treaty. That's not done anywhere in the world. You can't have a Department of Aboriginal Affairs negotiating both sides of a treaty. You can't have the Crown doing both. And so I think people felt, look, you know, after Native title has been so destructive in so many communities in terms of the 
the termination process. We can't even talk to each other. You know, families have been ripped apart. We need to treaty with ourselves before we even treaty with the state. And I think what happened in the conversations was that people started saying, look, if you've got an enshrined voice, an anchor in the constitution, then a lot of things can cascade off that provision um, and um, that voice. And until you have that anchor in the constitution that can't be undone, as Annie Pat alluded to with ATSIC, um, then it's going to be very hard for our people to forge out proper treaties in this day and age. You're retrofitting something so far since the first the invasion, first contact, that they're very, it's very difficult to do. And so um, so treaty didn't come first. In fact, in Broome, it was ranked last because they've got a large native title determination and they're used to agreement making. And when you talk to those people who are actively engaged in agreement making, it is, it is all about lawyers and interpretation of a text. And that's what treaties are. Talk to the US, talk to New Zealand, talk to Canada. It's all about big law firms, a lot of litigation, um, being generated to um, interpret a treaty um, and and people just kind of felt, you know what, we need to be empowered, our voice needs to be empowered, our grassroots communities need to be empowered, they need to be on their feet before they can do this work. Honey, Pat, let's talk about the federal government's response to the Uluru Statement of the Heart in the last four years. They've now uh, initiated a co-design process to look at perhaps having a piece of legislation that would form a voice to the parliament, but it wouldn't be in the constitution, it wouldn't go to a referendum yet. What was your response to that kind of a process um, initiated by the federal government? Well, I think it's very confusing for people out there because this 12-year, almost a 12-year process, nobody except the current minister has talked about a voice to government. We have that now. That's the point. We've been generations of us have been talking to government, you know. Um, so it's not structural reform. It's actually cementing in the status quo. It's a voice to government. We have now whether they listen or not. That's a whole other thing. But we've been talking to government. You know, every time there's like I say a, a new head of department, we all you know all the organisations tread, you know, trek all down to Canberra to convince this latest bureaucrat to justify, justify our existence so they'll continue to uh, fund our organisations. So there's no advance here. There's no movement here in, 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 my, in my view. It's just to preserve um, the status quo. Now, there is some support for a voice, uh, a legislated voice, but it's if it's a balloon, you know, and you get a pin and you put it in the balloon and it just all deflates um, and bursts. It takes the energy out. All this conversation we're having today, that will totally disappear for another generation just so we can go trekking back to government every time and begging, begging for money constantly, justifying ourselves, constantly justifying ourselves to government, to the population over and over and over again. That's enough. We are not going to do that anymore. So this is very disappointing, this process that's um, being held at the moment. Because as I say, there's no movement here, there's no structure reform, there's no reforms at all. Um, it is maintenance of, um, of the status quo. And what the voice, you know, the amazing explanation that Megan has just given to everybody, 
Um, this will give us a, some power. This will, you know, change the whole the whole dynamic. We're not in any position to negotiate anything. And I, I don't know where this this came. This has only come from Ken. No, no, we've had this sort of ten to twelve year pro. I think we've had eight eight select committees sitting with different terms of all looking for the same thing. You know, asking what what do blackfellas want. Uh, and when you tell them, they say, "Oh, we're not that. We'll do something else instead." You know. Um, so this has been a um, a 10, 12 year process. So it's it's at the end of that pro, as well as starting. You know, as I said earlier, from generations before even that, and the best they can come up with. And no, none of those none of those select committees mentioned. Correct me if I'm wrong, Megan. That we would go for a legislative voice. It's kind of like a duex machina just sort of turned up. You know. Um, so it's very disappointing um, without saying too much more about that. But this is not, surely this is what we want. We're going to come all this way just to go back again to maintain the status quo. I, I don't I don't I don't get it. I don't understand it. Why we would do this. That's my take on the process now. And Thomas, one of is the other things we hear. Me? That's what I asked. <laughs> that was a great answer. <laughs> um, one of the other things we hear, Thomas, from from many people and especially from the federal government is it's too big to fail. That's a line we've heard a lot. Just too enormous. We can't do that to the nation. Uh, what do you think about that idea that if we lose a referendum, it sets the agenda back another decade or two? Well, anything less than the, a constitutionally enshrined voice, anything less than a referendum is already going to fail. You know, like I've heard uh, people say, you know, if we, uh, this is the way it's been described. If we lose a referendum, then we scupper the opportunity for reform. Um, but you basically, there is no reform without a referendum, right? This is the point that uh, only legislating a voice um, is not a reform at all because it is the way it's been done before and we know that fails. Uh, we know a hostile government will come along. So the really important thing for people to to um, to really learn from this is that we must fight for a referendum. We cannot take anything less. We've got an election coming up, a federal election coming up, and you've got to get in the ears of the politicians to say, have the courage, um, understand that the Australian people will vote yes, have some vision for a change, and let's really change this nation in the way that people want. Um, let us go to the polls and vote yes to a First Nations voice at a referendum. Megan, when you look at the absolutely disastrous situation happening out west in far west and western New South Wales right now, hundreds of Aboriginal people have COVID. In Wilcannia, 13% of the population have COVID and now isolating in motorhomes. When we interviewed people from Wilcannia a couple of weeks ago, they said, hey, we warned the government that this was going to happen. No one listened to us. We went into meetings and it felt like we walked out and we didn't use our voices. We were silent. I wonder if that's resonated with you and, and whether um, it's just another example of perhaps how a voice could be used at really crucial moments like we're in now in the pandemic to advocate better for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a really important point. And yes, Pat and I, I mean, obviously Pat's in the health sector, so we talk about this a lot. Um, and, 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 and actually, you know, th these are the kinds of um, uh, things that were raised in the dialogues, obviously not in the context of the pandemic, but going and talking to government and them not hearing. Um, but one of the things, though, that happened in the dialogues was that, you know, a lot of our peak bodies were criticised for not listening either. So there's a lot of people who are conduits of people on the ground as well. Um, um, and those people 
uh, representatives of ours who, who go and lobby in Parliament House, but don't often go back to community and tell them what they're talking about or what they're saying or what they're spending the money on, you know, in the name of community. Um, and so there, there's a bit of tension there. That's important tension. It's, it's important. It's not, you know, it's not, we shouldn't pretend that that tension is not going on. And, um, you know, the key thing, Bridget, about um, this is this. So what we've seen in response to that is a lot of jockeying around what is the Commonwealth's responsibility and what is the state and territory's responsibility. And this is why our people are so clever, right? They said a Commonwealth, a federal voice to the parliament, meaning the constitutional provision, because it's in the constitution, will compel the state to have us at the table on all of the key decisions that are made about our communities and our lives. So we heard not long before the breakout in regional New South Wales, um, a story on NITV and ABC where they discussed vaccine rollout and um, the peak, the, the Nacho, the peak of the head of the coalition of peaks, weren't at the table. They, they, were, they were not in those discussions. That, that wouldn't happen with this constitutional enshrined voice. You, you're compelled by the force of law, as Arnie Pat said, the old people used to call it the big law, by the big law of the Australian people, to have us at the table because currently we're not there and it sounds nonsensical and this is the conversation we're having with Australians. They think we're at the table and we're not. You know, as of about two years ago, the agency, the, the peak agency on Aboriginal affairs didn't have a single Aboriginal person in its office. I mean, we're not joking when we say we're, our voices aren't there. Um, and the peaks, so the Coalition of Peaks, they deliver services, right? They're meeting with government for completely other, the other things, um, but they don't ne necessarily represent the voice of people out there on the ground. And I think somewhere along the way, something's gone, really seriously gone wrong. And our communities are saying, we told you this was going to happen and you didn't listen. And and that's one of the problems that Arnie Pat's talking about, about status quo. What they're currently designing is entrenching what already exists. And they and they had told things, you know, they kind of, there's these listening mechanisms they, they think is a voice, but it's not because they don't actually hear. They don't hear what it is that mob are saying. Um, if it's not consistent with what your board policy is or what your, you know, your funding agreement might be. There's a cognitive dissonance that goes on between, you know, elites who run organisations and the people on the ground. And and that's what's happened here. And, um, you know, the vision of The Voice was that if there were people out at Wilcannia and there were people out at Dubbo and Maury and Burke saying we're in trouble, then someone would have had to move. Um, because we, they're constitutionally compelled to listen to what we're saying. And now they're not. And right now they're not. The status quo is that they don't have to. And if you look at all the material Ken pulled together for his committee to design the interim voice, it says that the, the minister can ask the voice when it when he, he or she so feels. He's not compelled to ask the voice. The voice isn't mandated to say something. It's only when the minister wants. Now, I don't know what the final body is, but we know that whatever's going to come out, it, you know, the minister himself has said, we cannot create anything that isn't already existing, meaning they're just talking about the status quo mechanisms that are in place. And so, yes, I, I think that um, the vaccine rollout would have looked a lot different because we were told, yeah, we were all told about the schedule and about our most vulnerable mob being protected. That did not happen. So who 
who is at fault? Well, yeah, a really scary situation um, happening out there, West, and, and a, a really clear example of where a voice might have been a, a key mechanism to help people on the ground. Honey, Pat, we've only got a tiny bit of time left to go, but we might end on you telling everyone out there listening, what's your final message about the Uluru Statement from the Heart for those interested listening on at the moment? This is a real, this is a real opportunity for Australia to change its narrative. For Australians to be all feel welcome and comfortable in this country, in this land, which belongs to us. We, this is our place. You are welcome here. You always have been. Treat us with some respect. Acknowledge us and inform, inform yourselves about what's happening here. This is on the table and it is a, it's a gift to you. At least take the, make the courage to make the change and take the time um, to understand it and to, um, to, to read the statement and to contact harass your local member and the Prime Minister. This is the only way we're going to win this. Uh, and thank you for logging in to us um, this afternoon. Thanks, everyone, for your time. And to our panel, Professor Megan Davis, Sandy Pat Anderson and Thomas Mayer, privileged to have you today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you, Bridget. Thanks, Bridget. Thanks, Bridget. You can watch this talk on stream and you'll find the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening to Ideas at the House. I'm Edwina Throsby and I'll catch you next time. Thank you.